We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Thank you, Smiley Al, for that introduction. Welcome back, dear listener. It is episode 100. It's the Yay! And with me, the Velvet Glove, Scott. Congratulations. Yes, congratulations. They said we'd never make it, but we did. Mm. So. <laughs> oh, we've burst through the finishing tape of 100 episodes, Scott, and we're, 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 we're charging on. It's been good. <laughs> it has hey, been yeah. good. Mm. And there's been... Uh, Hasn't been. A, there's only been one episode you said that you've found difficult finding information for. But anyway, we've um, we've come out the other side, and we've mm. always had plenty to talk about. And this week's no exception. <laughs> That's right. We've got a big list of things this week, yes. dear listener. Um, mm. Just we had a nice little celebration on Sunday afternoon. Uh, it was lots of fun, had, wasn't it? Yes, Iron Fist, Velvet Glove, Twelfth Man, Right Wing Tony, uh, Rational Razor, Hugh Harris, and a couple of our patrons jason and sean uh we all got together and had a great uh a great afternoon of chatting it was really good fun so um that was a nice way for us to celebrate scott Mm. it was yes it was really good Mm. it was a little bit blokey we need some female voices and um (laughs) good news on that front scott uh the squeaky wheel will make an appearance in a few weeks time so we will have a squeaky wheel okay i don't know who that is so so you can you you can look forward to the squeaky wheel in a few weeks time so (laughs) that's coming up uh scott so i thought that we would kick off with um well dear listener we could have done various things for the 100th episode we could have uh you know rehashed some old stuff and um uh, done a review of what we've done, but there's so much going on in the world that we figured we'll just do a normal episode. It might go a bit longer because there's plenty to talk about. So, <laughs> Scott, uh, UK election. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it, it's proven to be May's folly, hasn't it? I mean, it was ridiculous that she went as early as she did, and it's blown up in her face. Mm. So she's gone from having a majority of 17 to no longer having a majority at all. Mm. And she's relying on the uh, support of the Democratic Unionist Party from Northern Ireland. And yes. the DUP are a little out there. <laughs> well, before you go on about the DUP, I'll, I'll give you Jonathan Pye's view of the DUP, dear listener. I, I have been reading up about the DUP, and they, they seem like quite a lot of fun. Barrel of laughs. From what I can make out, they have strong connections to paramilitary organisations. They're anti-abortion, pro-apartheid, anti-gay rights. Um, so, so they sound nice. <laughs> <laughs> They're a bunch of right-wing nutters. And they've got control of the UK Parliament, Scott. They are nutters, aren't they? They are complete lunatics. I mean, yeah, it's... It really is quite, um, well, okay, seeing we're a secular podcast, uh, at least one senior DUP member has defended creationism, the theory that the world was created by God 10,000 years ago. Mm. Mm. Um, founder Ian Paisley also once declared country and, country and Western style of dancing is sinful. The party also wants a review of terror laws and, def- and a defence shake-up. Um, <laughs> That's probably the nicest thing you can say about them. I mean, yeah, 
<laughs> okay, on the lower end of the scale, they are homophobic and that sort of stuff. The Northern Ireland is still the only part of the United Kingdom where you don't have marriage equality. It is absolutely insane. They want to take Britain back 20, 30 years ago, which is not going to happen. It's really bizarre. The only saving grace for them is that um, they don't want a hard Brexit in that they don't want the border between uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland to be patrolled and that sort of stuff. They want a soft Brexit on that particular border. That's the only thing that they've got going for them. Um, well, the thing is, that's not what uh, Theresa May wants. So. No, Theresa May wants a hard Brexit. She wants um, she wants everything to be out and um, re-establishing borders and all that sort of stuff. So it's it really is madness. I mean, there's um, there was one. There was one line in this uh, ABC article, what does this mean for Brexit? The the party's led by Arlene Foster, a former lawyer, um, and she said, what we want to see is a workable plan to leave the European Union, and that's what the, that's what the national referendum vote was about. Therefore, we need to get on with that, and she said in an interview with Sky News. I mean, it's... Um, Nobody wants to see a hard border. Sinn Féin, the opposing party in Northern Ireland, talk about it a lot, but nobody wants a hard border. It really is crazy when you listen to her, and um, she has got Theresa May by the short and curlies, though, doesn't she? You know. Yeah, I was reading this article from The Conversation and um, uh, talked about, um, you know, can minority governments survive? And uh, you know me, Scott, I love a good theory. Mm. And we've explored a few of them in the last 100 episodes. And here's a new theory, dear listener, the median legislator theorem. And it, and it goes something like this. So if you're in a sort of a Theresa May position where you don't have a majority of the House and you're needing support from other parties, then you can be quite successful provided you're in the middle ground because... If you want a kind of a right-wing policy, you can rely on some right-wing minorities to join up with you and pass something. And if you want some more leftish policy, then you can join up with some left-wing parties and get policies through. So as the central dominant party, you can be quite successful in a minority situation. But uh, this article makes the point that, okay, um, these nutters from the DUP... On, on social issues of abortion and marriage equality and all the other things, they're on the extreme right, mm. more right than Theresa May. So mm. she's in the middle there. Um, so she won't need them when it comes to those sorts of issues. But when it comes to Brexit, um, the, uh, the Theresa May's party are actually the most right-wing of all the parties, more right-wing than the DUP. So they're out on their own wanting a hard Brexit. Everybody mm. else wants a soft one. So it looks like um, she's going to end up having to negotiate a soft Brexit. 
incredibly after going to an early poll in order to get a big majority so she could go for a hard Brexit. She's going to get exactly the opposite of what she wanted. So, Well, this is what's really maddening about the whole situation was she went there to try and boost her majority. And, you know, at the time she looked like she was cruising very comfortably towards a massive majority. She was ahead of Labor 20 points in the opinion polls. And... Um, Right-wing Tony said it beautifully on Sunday afternoon. He says it proves she's not much of a campaigner, no. you know, because um, she eroded that. She eroded that. Uh, what's the word I'm groping for? The um, the majority that she she's 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 destroyed her parliamentary majority, and she also eroded the majority that she had in the parliament in the opinion polls down to virtually nothing. So it's. A bit of an opportunist move that's backfired. It has backfired, yeah. The other interesting one in this uh, thing is Sinn Féin, Scott. Yeah, Sinn Féin, yeah. Yeah, the other Irish party uh, who won uh, seven seats. Um, But, dear listener, they don't factor in the equation at all because uh, members of Sinn Féin who have been elected to the British Parliament, all seven of them, will will never sit uh, in Westminster. They just will not attend. Did you know that, Scott? I didn't know that, no. So they're, they're just protesting, are they? They, they have never apparently um, sat in Parliament whenever they've won seats. And uh, it, it's a policy that date backs 100 years to when the party's first MPs were elected in 1917 and decided to abstain. And it's been the case in every election since. And um, the problem is, Scott the parliamentary oath that MPs must take swearing allegiance to the Queen as head of state Mm. is objectionable to Irish Republicans. (laughs) Hence, they never attend Parliament. But they can test seats because they need to show their strength of their their political support in Northern Ireland. That's really interesting. It is really interesting, isn't it? I wonder if they get paid for being members of Parliament. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that works. But... um, just one more bit of history on this, dear listener. Uh, Joseph McGuinness was elected as Sinn Féin's first MP in a by-election in Longford South on 9th of May 1970. Even if he had wanted to take his seat, he would not have been able to, as he was at the time of his election serving a sentence of penal servitude in Lou's prison for his role in the previous <laughs> year's Easter Rising. <laughs> <laughs> so their first member of Parliament was, was in, in jail. Yeah, exactly. Oh. And they don't sit, they continue not to sit. I find that fascinating. Um, It is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. The other fascinating one is the British elections have these great characters who um, sit in various seats. And in Theresa May's electorate, uh, there was a guy called just Elmo who was in an Elmo suit. And Mm. did you hear about Lord Buckethead? Yes, I did see Lord Buckethead on um, last week tonight, which was aired last night on Foxtel. Mm. Yeah, it was very amusing. I think I might make it the photo for this episode. When you look, um, when, when they're announcing the votes, uh, the custom is that all of the candidates are standing on stage mm. as the votes are announced. And so you've got this guy in an Elmo suit and you've yes. got Lord Buckethead up on the stage <laughs> with Theresa May. And Lord Buckethead looks like something out of a Life of Brian movie, like the Knights <laughs> of Knee, or, or the Dark Knight almost, who gets his arms chopped off. He's, yeah. he's in this huge black costume with this huge thing over his head. And uh, 
He's Lord Buckethead. He got 249 votes or something like that. I think Elmo only got three. But mm. Lord Buckethead, Scott, had some, uh, had some good policies. And, um, he did. I mean, he was, um, he, was a little bit, he was a little bit strange in that he was... Um, uh, one of his policies was to stop selling weapons to Saudi Arabia and buy lasers from the, um, from the outer, outer space people. But uh, I, I, did, I did agree with him that they shouldn't sell weapons to Saudi Arabia. But anyway. Yeah, well, that's probably worth voting uh, for him on that alone. Um, mm. Theresa May's you know, whole thing, every time she was in front of a camera, she would say she was there for strong and stable leadership. And uh, Lord Buckethead's manifesto was strong, not entirely stable leadership. <laughs> And his and his number one policy was, um, this is for Lord Buckethead, was abolition of the lords except me. Yeah, his first policy, <laughs> and uh, uh, a legislation of the hunting of fox hunters, and uh, uh, yeah, stop selling arms to Saudi Arabia was a good one. And Birmingham should not um, oh a moratorium on two thousand until two thousand and twenty two on whether Birmingham should be converted into a star base. So he had a mixture of ideas in his manifesto, Lord Buckethead, but um, great scene with them all standing on stage. So so yes, they're in for a world of pain over there trying to run that government. Well, they certainly do appear to be in for a world of pain, don't they? And mm. it's really it's. Um, I don't want to jump on the anti-Theresa May bandwagon, but um, there's nothing else you can say except this is your fault. You know, she stuffed it up. Um, you know, it, going early was stupid, but not insane. But, you know, she's turned around and she, she's completely evaporated whatever advantage she had. It was mm-hmm. really crazy what she did. Mm. And the other thing was she hired the same um, texter, the same political sort of advisor that Malcolm Turnbull used. Or, or yeah, um, of them. And Tony was, Abbott, did, I think, was his name. It was the... Was the uh, it was a pretty ordinary uh, performance that he did in Australia. What's his name? His name was Texter, I think. No, it's who, not, not texture. Anyway, I'll, not, I'll okay. remember it later on. But, yeah. it. Anyway, they hired the guy who ran the Australian campaign for the Libs here, who did a pretty ordinary job, and he's gone over there and done... Linton Crosby, a, isn't it? Another, no, that could be it. Yeah, that could be it. He's done another ordinary job. So they've, they've imported a, an Aussie political um, advisor and probably better choices out there. But, uh, well, Scott, it, it does make you wonder, doesn't it? Closer to home, Scott... If there's not enough crazy things going on in the world, we've started really crazy stuff here. Uh, dear listener, you know, I subscribe to a lot of different atheist stuff from around the world. You see a lot of crazy American pastors doing all sorts of things or other things that are crazy in the world. Um, well, it our was, own... Sorry, it was Linton Crosby that was the uh, Tory campaigner. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll shut up now. You're back onto Thank it. You. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Uh, so, yeah, those sorts of places on the internet have been full of Australian stuff lately because the Victorian Islamic Council came out and asked for the most extraordinary thing during the week. Um, they made a submission uh, asking for funding to create safe spaces for young Muslims so that they could express inflammatory views. Um they wanted a space where Muslims could express themselves openly without being judged 
even if those views are inflammatory. And they wanted some taxpayer funding to help set up such a safe space. Uh, Fortunately, the Andrews government uh, said, I'm very troubled by the suggestion that we might have a space where people could be radical as part of a de-radicalisation program. That Mm. makes no sense to me whatsoever. Good good on you. Um, Daniel Andrews, you're correct again. Uh, He said he's going to have a look at their funding and... um, uh, yes, the submission says young people are unable to express anger or use certain facial expressions without becoming a target for surveillance. We are asking for forums for youth to express themselves in various ways with various emotions and not be judged. It beggars belief, doesn't it, Scott? It really is insane, isn't it? It's... Um I don't know what, what sort of response the Victorian Islamic Council was actually hoping to get other than the one they got. You know, I mean, the, the one they got was the only logical response that they could have got, but it's... I think they honestly expected some money from the government to set up a safe space so yeah, that but... young people could rant and rave about Western civilization Exactly. And, uh, without fear of being thrown into the slammer for, for expressing inflammatory views. But this is what was really maddening about the whole situation was you've got a you've got a situation where they wanted they wanted taxpayers' money to be set aside for them to set up a safe space for their youth to rail against Western civilization. This, this would be the same group who wants eighteen C amended. Exactly. People, yes. People so can't say nasty anything things. nasty thing about Islam, you know, it's. Ugh. It's really frustrating that they would actually come out with this and ask that. And I'm, my hat's off to Daniel Andrews. He hasn't he hasn't put a foot wrong yet, has he? He's um, no, he's been good. He's been very good, but you know he's <laughs> he's really shut them down. You know, it's um. Well, why are we funding these groups? You know, what? Are well, we doing I mean, giving money to why these is the Victorian Islamic Council getting money from the government anyway? Hmm. You know, I think I think he's going to have a good look at them. And uh, hopefully they might have drawn enough attention to themselves and people are going to say, uh, oh, what are we doing helping you out in the first place? Mm, Um, Exactly. And we shouldn't be helping out groups with these self-appointed leaders of minor ethnic groups. It just, it's wrong. But anyway, that's uh, a longer discussion at another time. I suppose if the government didn't fund it, then the Saudis would. So that is a... Yeah, well, then we shouldn't allow Saudis to do it either. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Mm. We'll talk about them a bit later on, Scott. They're on the agenda. Um, <laughs> euthanasia, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, came across this article from Catholic News where, according to pollsters who told the Herald Sun, um, it was a poll of 1,029 people, uh, most people favour voluntary euthanasia legislation. Um, and what the Catholic News is saying, well, okay, sure, most people favoured voluntary euthanasia, but those people who favour it, only 14% of them said it would influence their vote. Uh, but of the minority, the people who are opposing voluntary euthanasia legislation, 33% said that the issue would drive their vote. So Catholic News is saying to people or to politicians, OK, it might be a minority who still want to prohibit assisted dying, but that my minority votes on that issue, so you better not change anything. Is the essential guts of the article? That's the essential guts of the article. I mean, that, that, that's 
when I read it, I thought to myself, it's not a vote loser because you know you've still got the majority of the popular of the population supporting it. But you know, I read this and then I read it again, and I just thought to myself, this is the Catholics grasping at straws. This is all it is: is they are trying to they are trying to make out that it's not a good idea, and they're trying to make out that it's a a vote loser for Daniel Andrews to go ahead with it. Um, you'd have to argue that of those people who were not going to support euthanasia anyway and were not going to vote for it, they're probably not going to vote for Labor anyway. Mm. They're probably rusted on coalition voters. So the idea that um, you're going to get someone just to suddenly change their mind and change their vote, that's not going to happen. You know, it's... um, I it think really is ridiculous. Right. I think the people who are against it would actually be more likely to vote uh, based on that um, on that one issue as opposed to people who are in favour. So I think the, I think it's right. I just think it's disgusting that the Catholics are saying, you know, putting this forward as a threat, if you like. They're acknowledging a minority view but wanting to impose it on the majority and are using every means possible, including threatening politicians with... Um, losing losing more votes than what they might think. So mm. typical of them. But in the process of all this, Scott, we came across another article which um, is from Dying for Choice, um, Rocking the Vote for Law Reform. And it's done a great analysis of various surveys of people's opinions about uh, voluntary euthanasia and assisted dying. And... Uh, it refers to two polls, one in 2007 by News Poll and one in 2016 by Australian Election Study. And in both of those, uh, pretty much identical results in that 74% of Catholics and 81% of Anglicans actually support assisted dying legislation. So, uh, so even amongst the religious, the majority are in favour of assisted dying. And uh, some interesting graphs here where um, it's some of the other Christian denominations where the uh, support for assisted dying legislation drops away. So I guess that would be Mormons and Baptists and other more extreme Yeah, and your Hillsongs and that sort of people, yes. yeah. So mm. amongst those, but even amongst them... It's uh, still 55... Point nine percent, yes, yeah. for um, for other Christians and fifty six percent for other non Christian religious groups. So, uh, still support there. Really interesting. The people who ha- said they had no religion, ninety percent of them were in favour of assisted dying. Mm. So huge statistics for people who are in favour of it in the community religious or not, but especially if you're not religious. The article refers to a 2011 National Church Life Survey which gives lower support figures amongst the religious, but it poo-poos that report for various reasons that it outlines and I, I won't go into. But also in examining the statistics, there's a really strong correlation between how frequently religious people attend church services 
and how strong their opposition to assisted dying legislation. And Scott, no surprise to learn, yeah. dear listener, that the more often people go to, um, well, there's a, there's a huge jump. Um, if you're a, a less than once a year, once a year, several times a year, or once a month, support for assisted dying is still extremely strong amongst the religious. But once you get to the once a week category, the regular churchgoers, then yeah. uh, you know you're looking at sixty nine percent of them are against um, assisted dying. So, majority of Christians want legislation to allow assisted dying. It uh, it flips over though when you're looking at the religious people who attend church once a week and. Um, yeah, but aren't we talking about 8% of the population attend church uh, once yeah, a week? About 15%. Okay, 15% uh, okay. of the population. Sorry, 12%. So those who attend religious church services frequently, um, that's weekly or more, are just 12% of the population. So Yeah, but even with that, though, 33.6% of them still agree. that. Uh, no, not of the people who attend once a week. Oh, actually, uh, yeah, thirty-three point six percent still agree that it's a good mm. idea that you, you mm. should have that you mm. should have um, assisted dying. So you know that, that's yeah. Anyway, yeah. So um, so I've got here eighty-four. Uh, yes, you're right. So so dear listener, um, situation where most of us, uh, religious or not want some sort of legislation, even if you're religious, you want it. It's just the ones who attend services once a week uh, who are against it and who are holding us back yet again. Um, Scott, um, Catholic schools, (laughs) never out of the news. No, they're never out of the news. You know, I had to agree with the um, secular party when they... uh, when they put this article up, because the headline is Catholic schools ordered to stop kids' confessions behind closed doors. And the secular party comment was, great, now can we stop? Conv- now can we also ask them to stop convincing kids that they're sinners? You know? <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Anyway. anyway yeah, Catholic, Catholic schools have been ordered to stop hearing children's confessions behind closed doors. Um uh, this is, comes from Melbourne's Catholic Archbishop, Dennis Hart. Uh, he wants confessions to be held in an open setting in full view of all participants who are supervised by staff. Gee, Scott, I wonder why we have that sort of law. <laughs> so here's an Archbishop, finally, at least on this particular minor part of the whole process, has got the right idea in saying... Instead of sticking these people, the priest and the penitent, in a box with curtains drawn, let's have them out in the open. You know, they can be in a big room and they're over in the corner and then super, you know, somebody can be watching to make sure nothing gets up to any funny business um, from Mm. across the room. Obviously unable to hear, but at least able to watch Mm. and see what's going on. And, uh, of course, you know, there has to be a priest who's not happy. We've got Father John O'Connor. Um, he's insisting on using the confessional box. 
but he's keeping the door open so that people can look in and see that the kid is there. So the door of the confessional box is open and the kid's sitting in there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, can he, un- no, I can't understand where he's coming from, but at least he's got the door open, you know. Mm. That's... So the kid's, well, the child's door is open and he keeps his door shut. That's a little suspicious, Scott. But anyway, <laughs> um, here's the quote. Makes you wonder why. It makes you wonder why he needs to keep himself behind closed doors because everyone knows who the priest is. You're supposed yes. to not know who the penitent is. So yes, anyway. yes. Um, here's the quote from him: "The church has been in this game for a long time, and it knows what is best for the penitents." <laughs> and he's gone on to say. Anonymity makes it easier for them to unburden themselves with anything in regard to sin, he said, noting that he had not been challenged about the confessionals in nearly 19 years as a priest. Gee, nobody's challenged him as a priest. So he's not happy. He's using the confessional box. He's keeping the kid's door open. He's got his door closed and he's having a bit of a grumble about it. Because he can't see anything wrong with the old system. Well, you know, 4,000 people might disagree with him, you know. Mm. I can remember my first confession, Scott. Yeah? Do mm. tell. Uh, was it, uh, I was a primary school student at, at uh, Our Lady Help of Christians School at Hendra in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. And we had our confirmation. And I think at the time that you have your confirmation, you have your first confession... And I'm pretty sure it was in an open setting, actually, the first one. But I'm not 100% on that. But I do recall, like, you know, you're 12. Ah, I must have been 12, 13 maybe. And you just make up sins. Like you had to you go in there and you think, what am I going to say? I can't exactly. You know, yeah, that, oh, I, I stole a kid's eraser and I, I lied to somebody. You know, you just make <laughs> stuff up and he. He then tells you, oh, you know, for your sins, you've got to do three Hail Marys and six Our Fathers, and off you go. And then you go into the pews and you say Hail Mary three times and Our Father six times, and presto. Yeah, see, I... Queen soul. See, I'm not Catholic, so I never had anything like that, but my nieces and nephews were raised Catholic. And um, they came home and um, Joshua said to mum, he said, oh, no, I've got to have um, my first confession. And um, she said, I'll just go tell the priest that you're not old enough to have sinned. And that's what he did. <laughs> right. Good. Good on. That's great. I wish my, wish my parents were up for that at the time. Um, oh, speaking of sinners, Scott, Donald Trump. I, I'm not sure if I mentioned this one. Did I mention the Donald Trump Twitter account to you? Yeah, you did. Is there a First Amendment right to follow the President Trump's Twitter account? Mm, this is really interesting, dear listener. It is, so, yeah. It is really interesting, actually. It's it's um it's a crash course in um, American constitutional law, isn't it? Mm. So what's been happening is the president, uh, Donald Trump, is very fond of his Twitter account. It's his own personal account, the Donald Trump one, rather than the POTUS account that he's been using, I believe. But nonetheless... He makes official government statements on his Twitter account and it's been declared by his advisers uh, very openly. Sean Spicer declared um, that, you know, what the president tweets 
are considered official statements by the President of the United States. So this raises a novel question of constitutional law. Is there a First Amendment right to access Trump's Twitter account? Uh, The issue arises because Trump objects to what people say about him in Twitter and he sometimes blocks their access to his account. Um, Now the Columbia University Knight First Amendment Institute, which is a group dedicated to protecting free speech, is threatening to sue Trump unless he unblocks the Twitter accounts of individuals that he has blocked. Um, They say that the First Amendment protects the rights of citizens to petition the government for redress of grievances. Um, And so, you know, when people are commenting on his Twitter account, they're often petitioning the government and... In addition, the First Amendment prohibits viewpoint-based censorship of speech. You cannot, in government, uh, censor speech because you don't like the viewpoint that's being put forward. It's part of the First Amendment. So when uh, Trump blocks access to his Twitter account for those who disagree with him but permits access for those who agree with him, he is engaging in viewpoint-based censorship. Um and there's talk about there's different things where you have a public forum, etc. And it seems to be that uh, it is a public forum, and um, uh, because he said it's used for official functions. So Scott, very very strong legal case when this goes to court, where Donald Trump will be forced to unblock, unblock. people he's blocked yeah. from his Twitter account. Wait, that'd be great. Well, he, he will be great, yeah, because he's a man that's made his um, he's he's made his run for president via Twitter. Mm. So he has um, he set himself up for this. So as far as I'm concerned, well, all power to the to the guys that are taking him to court. Mm. I hope they're successful. Mm. I'm thinking. Well, I'm thinking we need a First Amendment in the Australian Constitution. So. We could use one because it covers two things that are very near and dear to our heart, Scott. Yeah. The First Amendment, dear listener. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So the first two parts to this, Scott, one is... No law respecting the establishment of religion. And we have section 116, which unfortunately uses the words establishment of any religion. And the word any has been interpreted to make our section very different to the US one. So because of the US wording, the government does not provide money for private schools to conduct their faith classes. So uh, so the things that we are fighting so hard about in Australia just do not happen in the United States. The mm. government is not allowed to provide money for private religious schools. There's no way you could put school chaplain in a state school in the US with the First Amendment. So, mm. so number one, I, you know... We should be, Scott, in a secular movement seeking 
as number one on the agenda would actually be to beef up our Section 116 and make it more like the US First Amendment in terms of religion. Because then you've got something that lasts beyond one government. Exactly. And then you'd have no... um You'd have no Howard or anything like that fiddling with the chaplain's program. Oh, he created the chaplain program. It was Tony Abbott that then expanded it. So, yeah. you know, it would be just, it would just be out the window, wouldn't it? Correct. So, you know, we could fight and successfully win to get changes made to, um, you know, religious instruction classes and funding of private schools and school chaplains. Great, we've won. And then the next week, new government comes in and goes back to the old rules and you know, all exactly, over it again. Yeah. Whereas if you can actually get a constitutional change, then you're done and dusted. So mm. it should be something on the agenda that isn't on there. So, um, so anyway, that's, that's the first part. And the second part of it, Scott, is this freedom of speech. Like we've got the situation with Section 18C where we're battling to stop it being... Um, you know, more widely interpreted and, uh, you know, other people are wanting religious groups um, brought in to be um, covered by it, which they're not currently. And again, if we had a First Amendment type provision, we would have a permanent block to... uh, Anything that stops freedom of speech, yeah. Mm, Yeah. So the US has got a lot wrong with it, but crikey, you know, when they drew that constitution up, they did have some eloquent speech and some good ideas and you know that's some bad ideas when it comes to gun control but yeah um, for sure but they weren't to know that possibly you know it was a different <laughs> time but gee this has stood the test of time this first amendment um so you know second well you could you could argue that the second amendment was misinterpreted by the by the supreme court you could argue that it should have only it should have been um Restricted to members of militias. Right. Um, which... Does it actually refer... I, haven't, I can't recall... Uh, the right second arms actually refers to militias. I think, it does actually, I think it does actually refer to militias. Uh, okay. So the idea was that um, you would still have an armed population, but the population would have to be members of militias and that sort of stuff to get their arms. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mm. anyway... Um, <laughs> You know, secular move. I mean, it's pie in the sky. I exactly, like yeah. Getting a thing passed. But just, it should be on the agenda to just... Even if it's just one know. of those things that just sits on there all the time where you, you, you're constantly bringing it up, you're saying, yeah, we want to see Section 116 amended, we want to see Section 116 mm. amended. Mm. And then eventually, they're probably just going to give it to us just to shut us up. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. but Because um, when Tony was uh, with us on Sunday, he... I think at some point he said, well, you know, what's what's the most important thing that you guys are after as secularists? And um, and we referred to uh, education, mm. um, basically. The, but, uh, you know, right-wing Tony, if I had my chance again, I would say that really number one would be a sort of a first, you know, a change to Section 116 to beef it up to be more like the First Amendment. I mean, that ideally would be the number one thing on the agenda because you've locked it in then. Exactly, so. yeah. There we go. Scott, we've got some uh, uh, feedback to do with our with our 100th episode and some uh, congratulations from people. So we've got one here from No Name, so I'll we'll just play a bit of that. 100 episodes of Iron Fist and Velvet Glove. Congratulations, 
Congratulations to all involved. Great achievement. No, no name provides his own sound effects as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, no name. And, uh, and we've also got this one from Sean. Congratulations to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove on 100 episodes. It's been a, an interesting year. Um, uh, I think I was one of your uh, first patrons and, and an early supporter, so I'm uh, glad to see you guys have reached 100 episodes. I, I hope you reach uh, 100 more. Keep up the good work. Good on you, Sean. Sean was, in fact, the guy who said, you know, suggested we actually start a Patreon account. So, <laughs> so dear listener, yeah, you so can for blame any of Sean. You, any of you that are, that are ticked off when you get cut off, well, you can blame Sean, yes. <laughs> Good on you, Sean. And he has been an, a magnificent supporter for the program. And, Scott, I'm declaring that, you know, amongst our patrons, we have a hall of fame and and... Sean, you are hereby inducted into the Iron Fist Velvet Glove Patreon Hall of Fame, the first inductee. Congratulations. Congratulations, Sean. Well done. Close on your heels is uh, Alex. Good on you, Alex. You've been terrific as well, and uh, you are nearly over the line for induction into our Hall of Fame as well. And thank you again as well to Jason Grant, John Craig, Janelle, Al and Ken, good on you. Thank you much for your support. Um, it's great. And, gee, if, you, uh, if you're not sure of um, uh, what we're talking about here, I'll just play a little bit here. Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Thank you, Smiley Al. Now, Scott, um, you're a former member of the Liberal National Party. I am, yes. Mm. <laughs> what, what I didn't leave for the same reasons that uh, right-wing Tony did. But no, so. no. <laughs> Tony, right-wing Tony, you know, you know, when asked why did he leave, and they said, because they went after my super, <laughs> the bastards. <laughs> it's as good a reason as any, Tony. That's, um, yeah, but, but I Scott, still maintain that $1.6 million is a hell of a lot of cash, and if you've got anything more than that, you should be paying the maximum amount of tax yeah. on it. So, well, well. Anyway. <laughs> Scott, when you went to party meetings, branch meetings, was it a wide variety of ethnic groups in there? Was the Chinese <laughs> person or, or there whatever was, there? You know, I was up here in Mount Cravat, and there was a couple of Chinese people. There was a couple of Russians, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing that were in there. Um it was, and there was also an Indian, I think, from memory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there was um, there was a wide variety of people that were involved in it, yes. It must have been great that people from different backgrounds could come together on issues that they felt a common view upon and, and be as one over, an, over issues. Exactly, I. yes. You know, mm. promoting the Liberal Party. Mm. So, dear listener, it is... In my view, shameful on all involved that there are now a couple of 
Chinese-only branches of the Liberal Party in Queensland. One of them uh, has been in Sunnybank and one has recently formed on the Gold Coast. And they're designed for uh, Chinese people, Chinese immigrants, Chinese foreign. well, anybody Chinese who wants to speak Chinese and go to a meeting. This, Scott, is not a good development. Um, Just a bit more on the article. While LNP officials have embraced the enthusiasm of the new Chinese supporters, some rank-and-file party members are not impressed, questioning why they wouldn't just join existing branches. And that is the... They've hit the nail right on the head, questioning why they wouldn't just join existing branches. Mm. You know, that is... um, Well, this smacks of racism, doesn't it? It's... um, You've got a situation that you've got a Chinese-only branch. Well, okay. It's probably a Mandarin or Cantonese-speaking branch. But let's be honest here. If you're a Mandarin or Cantonese speaker, you probably don't look like you or I. You look like Mm. you're Chinese. Mm. And it's... Well, there's nothing else for it. It's racist. You know, and, and you know, the ALP doesn't do this. They don't separate themselves out and that sort of thing. So I don't understand why the LNP has gone and done this. This is just no good for our society if we're just going to break down into these little ethnic groups. Um, these people have got common cause with a bunch of other everyday Australians. They should be joining with them. This this is, you know, part of the problem that happened in the UK, in Birmingham, and how they've ended up with part of the situation they've got is that mm. people segregated into these enclaves and refused to mix and they abandoned political workers' groups that, that crossed ethnic boundaries. That's exactly how the UK got into trouble, according to the Ken and Malik theory anyway, which makes sense to me. And this is... It's just clearly a really, really bad idea. And Okay, if people can't understand English... Well, A, they should be encouraged to learn and B, have some interpreters there and make it easier for people to to get some sort of um, running translations going of, of what's happening. But you to segregate into ethnic groups like that, when you've got so much in common, if you're a Liberal Party supporters, it's really disturbing and... Um, not a good look. I think it's something that the Liberal Party will regret in the future. Mm. You know, I think it is a... Um, it was very short-sighted of them. I mean, I can understand why they went down that road and that sort of stuff, but it's not a good look at all. Mm. You know, it's really disturbing. It's... it's Yes, it's, it's not good. Um, mm. Scott, do you like uh, Mexican food? I do, actually, yes. And right. I, was, um, I was reading this and... Getting rather distressed about it. Because <laughs> there is a place in Portland um, in the US, Oregon, which uh, made burritos and um, the, it was run by some white people who bragged about going down to Mexico and stealing recipes and then finding all of the great recipes in Mexico, coming back and using those to create their burritos and... When people got wind of how they were bragging about this, they basically started a movement to boycott the restaurant and uh, and it eventually had to close down due to uproar and people who were 
unhappy with them, even started a spreadsheet featuring white-owned appropriative restaurants in Portland, um, listing some of several most popular restaurants in the city with recommendations for nearby alternatives owned by people of colour. So, Scott, on the one hand, a bit of poor form just to be bragging about and using the word stealing recipes from Mexican natives. But ultimately, a recipe is a recipe and and it's nothing for people in Australia to go to Southeast Asia and learn how to cook, you know, Vietnamese meals and come back and start preparing them here. Like, that's what we do. We share things. That's the whole idea of diversity. Why we say it's good is because we share ideas. We don't say diversity is good because we get to keep our own little diverse bit for ourselves. Um, so their language—it is ridiculous. Great. It is ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, like you know, they've got a spreadsheet featuring white-owned appropriative restaurants. That's really crazy. Mm. Because you've so got is, sorry. This is the whole Abdul Majid cultural appropriation argument. Hmm. Mm. It really was maddening, wasn't it, reading it? Anyway. Mm, mm. Of course, uh, dear listener, until you've been to Mexico, anything that you think you've eaten that you think is Mexican is nothing like true Mexican food. Because I can remember (laughs) back in 1983, I was backpacking through the USA and was down in the sort of southern states of Arizona and that, and I thought, oh, I love this Mexican food. It's fantastic, you know because I was heading to Mexico and I'm going to have burritos and all these other things, got down to Mexico, as soon as you cross the border, the food is completely different. It's way better <laughs> and it's it's much better, but it is completely different. You couldn't buy a corn chip in Mexico in 1983. Like, they just didn't exist. Really? Um, yeah. yeah. And burritos didn't exist. Everything was sort of enchiladas and, and tacos, which were soft, soft tacos and... It, it was completely different food. So, um, mm. so yeah, what you see in a Mexican restaurant here is, you know, it's as Mexican as, you know, a sweet and sour chicken dish from a Chinese <laughs> restaurant is Chinese. <laughs> you know, that, it's a long way to go. Anyway, I've digressed. Speaking of chickens. Not yeah, this good was for, really disturbing, wasn't it? Mm, not good for chickens in New York at uh, certain times of year. <laughs> We haven't had a good bash of of, of, of Jews for a of long Jews time. For a while. I mean, they are the other major Abrahamic faith, and we're into Christians and Muslims all the time. But the Jews sort of fly under the radar. But you know, the the ultra until nonsense like this comes up, yeah, yes, and you know, until they are sort of chopping foreskins off and and then sucking the piece the of blood, skin off, yeah. you know, mm. with a herpes infected rabbi. You know, we've mentioned that before, but. Mm. Um, Scott, uh, this is in Brooklyn, uh, New York City. Um, Caparot Caparot is performed in the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. In the ritual, men, women and children swing a white chicken, a sign of purity, above their heads three times as they pray for their sins to be transferred to the chicken. <laughs> then the chicken is slaughtered in a kosher manner by slitting its throat. The meat, or the monetary equivalent, is donated to the poor. <laughs> I, 
why do they have to swing it around their head three times first? I mean, like, it's just... You know, Scott, what's, I, what's I'm, the I'm, worst I'm, part? What's the wor- obviously, there's a group who's protesting this, but Scott, what is the worst part of this whole thing? A, oh, is killing it, it swinging the chicken its throat. A, is sorry. it swinging the chicken around your head three times? Is it that's A? Is it B, slitting the chicken's uh, throat with a knife, or is it C, Scott, transferring your sins to an unsuspecting chicken? <laughs> I, I put it to you, Scott. It's a mixture of A and B. Are really bad. I, yes. I put, no, look. I put it to you that the chicken didn't deserve the sins. <laughs> of all the cruelty involved in this article, surely foisting your sins on an innocent chicken is, is perhaps the most despicable. Yeah, but we know that nothing actually happens with that, don't we? You know, well, they, they don't. The, the, yeah, but... Okay, <laughs> we're looking at this from the outside in and... Um, we know that you can't put your sins on a bird and then mm. kill the bird. Well, you can kill the bird, but that's not, you know, that doesn't take away the sins or anything like that because sin doesn't exist. Um, a and B, I think, are the most despicable. Swinging it around your head three times and then cutting its throat. You know, mm. it's... Why can't they just decapitate the animal? And why do they have to swing it around the head three times? That, that's... Yeah. Perhaps I mean, just the usual electric shock. I don't know how they normally kill chickens in um, abattoirs, chicken abattoirs. Well, I would imagine it's electric shock. It is electric shock, and then after that, mm. they they then cut the heads off and that sort of stuff, so that it's still mm. it's still um, compliant with uh, halal methods. Mm. You know, mm. so. it's but, pretty you know, frantic in a in a chicken abattoir. Apparently, oh, we our law firm at one stage had to act for somebody who was injured. Um, I think, you know, in slicing and dicing chickens and uh, a couple of the guys had to go to the factory and walk around the, just sort of see how the process worked and um, they came back because they got dressed up in the whole full kit, you know, a bit like um, yeah, forensic police, you know, you're wearing the whole thing and um, and they're watching people as they're frantically chopping chickens and they said just chicken flesh is just flying left, right and centre and there's people there just busily working away with bits of chicken flesh just draped all over their faces as it just flying, <laughs> hanging off the end of their noses, bits of chicken and blood and guts and stuff. And, uh, yeah, it was <laughs> quite a sight, apparently. Ah, <sighs> oh, dear. Well, it's just, you know, the picture on this article, like the way they're holding onto the chickens, like they've got their their wings pinned behind their backs and that sort of stuff. It's really... It's times for chickens in Brooklyn. Well, you know, it is... I'm not a vegetarian or anything like that, but surely you don't have to swing the chicken around your head before you kill it. Mm. Well, and surely you don't have to pass your sins on to an unsuspecting chicken as well. <laughs> Scott, uh, there's been terrorism attacks left, right and centre. And one that didn't get a lot of publicity um, compared to others is the attack in Iran. So ISIS has been in Iran and, uh, and conducting some terrorism activities. At least 12 people were killed and dozens more were injured when six terrorists with assault rifles and suicide vests attacked the Iranian parliament and the mausoleum of the founder of the Islamic Republic. So, um, 
So, yeah, so ISIS um, is attacking Iran, and the question would be, why are they doing that? And, dear listener, the answer, of course, is it's a Sunni-Shia um, dispute. So if there's one thing a Sunni Muslim hates more than an apostate or a Christian, it would be a Shia. Mm. And um, so, yeah, ISIS being Sunni, Iran being Shia and uh, ISIS is headed over there and conducted a bit of mischief. So that's what's going on there. Well, more than mischief. They killed 12 people, which um, mm. I know that, um, that we should concentrate on our own neck of the woods, mm. but you would think that that would have made it to our television screens. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Dear listener, a bit of a 101 on the... Shia Sunni divide. Yeah, this was really interesting, wasn't it? Mm. So both Sunnis and Shias draw their faith and practice from the Quran and the life of the Prophet Muhammad, and they agree on most of the fundamentals. The differences are related more to historic events, ideological heritage, and issues of leadership. And essentially, what you've got is um, Sunni Muslims. Uh, they follow um, four religious schools, the Hanafiya, the Malikiya, the Shafiya, and the Hanbaliya. And uh, they tend to have um, that sort of doctrinal um, thing where they get their um, theories from, whereas Shias tend to rely more on imams as their spiritual leaders. Um, so Shias favour also um, Hadith traditions that come from the Prophet's family and closest associates, while Sunnis cast a broader net, uh, including the Prophet's companions. So it's all to do with uh, when Muhammad died, he didn't have any children, so there was a dispute. He had three over. wives but no children. Yeah, and I think he had some children, but they didn't survive. So, um, oh, okay. So there was a problem there with uh, passing on power, and initially uh, it went to um, someone who wasn't a direct descendant or wasn't a part of his family, um, and then it, it's a, and then so that would be um, who the. The Shias follow that group and the Sunnis favour ones where uh, another sort of group that splintered off that um, went through associates of the Prophet rather than having to be part of the extended family of the Prophet. Um, so it harks back to, you know, the initial years after the Prophet's death and how should power go, one saying it had to remain in the extended family, one saying it had to go via... Um, associates and colleagues and that's how we ended up with the Sunni Shia divide and they're still fighting it out 1400 years later yeah it's more ridiculous than ever isn't it mm. Mm. from the Sunni side of the fence we've got Saudi Arabia and they are just destabilizing the world and here's an article we've mentioned in the past Scott how they're getting up to mischief in Indonesia and this article examines what Saudi Arabia has been doing in Indonesia. Um, 
It's been working for decades to pull Indonesia away from moderate Islam and towards the austere Wahhabi form that is the state religion in Saudi Arabia, Wahhabi being part of the Sunni branch. Um, What's happening is... um, I'll just quote a little bit here. The centre of Saudi Arabia's campaign to convert Indonesians to Wahhabi Islam is a tuition-free university in Jakarta known as Lipia, L-I-P-I-A. All instruction is in Arabic, given mainly by preachers from Saudi Arabia and nearby countries. Genders are kept apart. Strict dress codes are enforced. Music, television and loud laughter are forbidden. Students learn an ultra-conservative form of Islam that favours hand amputation for thieves, stoning for adulterers, death for gays and blasphemers. And how do students get into this university in Jakarta? Well, they're funnelled in there from more than 100 boarding schools Saudi Arabia supports in Indonesia. Or perhaps they've attended one of the 150 mosques that Saudis have built in Indonesia. So the most promising are given scholarships to study in Saudi Arabia, from which they return fully prepared to wreak social, political and religious havoc in their homeland. Scott, it's a diabolical formula where poor people cannot afford to send their kids to a school. The Saudis offer a free education and meals and they then can find the brightest and smartest of this group, put them in the university, send them over to Saudi Arabia, bring them back fully indoctrinated and ready to cause havoc. If you wanted to, it's a brilliant evil scheme. If you, if, if you wanted to ruin a country, that's how you would do it. Well, yeah. I go back to our argument last week about the um, uh, foreign aid program. Mm -hmm. I really think that we need to increase our foreign aid to Indonesia and we need to build a secular university Mm. (laughs) that teaches things that you learn at university Mm. and you've got bars and music and all that sort of stuff on there, and then you've got the opportunity where you can say you can go here or you can go there, you know, your choice. I'm just... um, The university that studies studies everything in Arabic, does it? Mm. And the lecturers are imams and that sort of stuff from Saudi Arabia, are they? Mm. Mm. What are they learning? I, I can recall, Scott, that people finish this university completely unable to get a job in Indonesia because yeah. they've learnt Arabic and it's useless to them. Exactly. You know, my brother has a little bit to do with Thailand because his wife's a Thai. And he said to me that um, in southern Thailand you've got the uh, Muslims who are always complaining that, you know, the, the nation's against them because they can't get jobs and that sort of stuff. And... You know, Grant even said to them once, he said, no, the reason why you're not getting jobs is because you're going to these Wahhabi schools, mm. everything's taught in Arabic, and you come out and you can't even read and write the local language. That's why you're not getting a job. Mm. You know, and that is the thing that's really maddening is that, um, and that's where ISIS is getting its recruits from, is mm. 
is amongst these people that are educated and that sort of stuff, but they're educated in the wrong language. Mm. The money we're spending on stupid submarines and whatnot and other yeah. stuff, we should be spending on some foreign aid in places like Indonesia and we the should Philippines. be offering some education mm. and we should be uh, particularly targeting uh, military and police families and saying, here is a free education for your kids, come and get it. And mm. some of the more powerful um, groups there we should be currying favour with and helping them to to um, remain civilised. So, Well, this is it. I mean, that, if, they're gonna, the if, they're, areas, yeah. if they're going to end up getting a free education from Saudi Arabia, God knows what mm. we're going to end up creating. Mm. And this is on our bloody doorstep. Yeah, and we can see it happening. So it's it's a hundred hundred schools, hundred and fifty mosques, a massive university in Jakarta. It's it's a it's an it's impressive setup by Saudi money, and it's incredible that we're just allowing it to happen under our noses. Well, we can't stop it, but we should bloody well put up some sort of competition for it. Mm. We've got a bit happening on Saudi Arabia over the next few articles. Uh, they've got a soccer team that was here, and uh, this was <laughs> that shortly was after bloody the, disgusting, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, shortly after the London attack, uh, as is customary, um, soccer officials organised to have a minute's silence, and unfortunately, the Saudi team completely ignored that and just continued with their warm up while everyone else was. Observing a minute's silence. Some people were prepared to excuse them, saying it's not part of their culture and they don't normally do that. And fortunately, there's plenty of evidence that's cropped up of them at numerous other occasions observing a minute's silence, um, even for their own heads of state who have passed away and things like that. So, um, so Scott, I think uh, Australia went on to win that match three goals to two. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was ridiculous, wasn't it? They, they didn't they didn't stand or anything like that. They just they continued their warm up, mm. and you know you've got um, well they went through and they they've talked about you know a Saudi team standing for a minute's silence before the Qatar Airways Cup match against Barcelona in 2016. That was um, for the death of former Saudi King Abdullah. You know so. To say that it's not part of their culture is BS. Mm. It is absolute nonsense, and it is something that they should have stood and be silent for. Mm. So I guess uh, apologists might say, well, you know, when we go over there um, and we're asked, our women are asked to wear the veil and we object, um, then we are dissing their culture, so why should we expect them to follow our culture? Like, if we think it's okay for Michelle Obama and Trump's wife to not wear a veil, then it's okay for Saudi people to refuse to obey our customs when they're here. And my answer to that, Scott, is yes, they can refuse to you know, like follow the custom that we're proposing when they're here. It's just that uh, they can expect to be criticised for it and to have to justify it. So we can go over there and say, Al, you know, Julie Bishop should not wear a veil. And if you want to have a big debate about it, let's have one. 
mm. and we're happy to stand by our decisions. So, uh, so the situations are similar in that visitors, in that sense, can do what they like or should be able to do what they like, but it's a case of accept criticism if it's coming your way and be prepared to justify your decision. And I think somebody like Julie Bishop not wearing a veil could easily justify it and a Saudi team not respecting a minute's silence couldn't really come up with a good reason why. Hmm. Hmm. Exactly. Bit of a fight over, well, a bit of a problem with Qatar, Scott. Um, They're in the naughty corner. Yeah, and when you read into it, they really shouldn't be, should they? No, well, poor old Qatar. Yeah, <laughs> poor so old Qatar. Sa- yeah, yeah, it's 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 only some a- of the, um, sort of Arab friends are ganging up on them. Yeah. So Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, and Egypt have cut air, land, and sea travel to Qatar, um, and they are accusing Qatar of giving comfort and assistance to Islamic State. Scott, Saudi Arabia is accusing Qatar of giving comfort to Islamic State. (laughs) And they're good. They can say this with a straight face, apparently. Like, apparently they can, in all seriousness. Saudi Arabia can say, oh, we're shutting off diplomatic ties with Qatar because they're just helping Islamic State too much. You know, well, reading from the article, there is no doubt that the Al Tahini clan, which rules the emirate from its capital Doha, has funded militants fighting the regime of President Bashar al-Assad in Assyria and meddled in the internal affairs of other Arab nations through its support of the Muslim Brotherhood, notably in Egypt. Now, if you go back, and this, I was listening to this today, um, sorry, yesterday on a podcast, the Muslim Brotherhood itself started out as a for want of a better term, a um, oh, we used to have them here in Australia, you know, it was a cooperative, basically, where it was providing um, the sorts of things that you would expect a state would provide. So healthcare, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, and money for the poor and that sort of stuff. So it was set up like that. Yes, <laughs> it went off the rails when it got elected in Egypt. There's no doubt about that. But it was set up initially as a fundraising arm for the poor and that sort of stuff and it has gone a little bit off the rails in recent years there's no doubt about that um so qatar is seen as supporters of the muslim brotherhood yeah exactly now Mm -hmm. then it comes down here further the more heinous sin for which doha is being punished is his willingness to acknowledge that iran occupies a position as important as an important regional power, and that political Islamists like Hamas and Hezbollah have a role to play in determining the future of the Middle East. To put it bluntly, Qatar is being penalised for refusing to accept the status quo of the last 40 years. Mm. And that was when I really... Because when it, when it initially was reported and that sort of stuff, I thought to myself, well, you know, the Saudis, they shouldn't be pointing the finger and that sort of stuff. People in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, but at least someone's calling them out on it. Then when you read into it, they're probably not guilty of anything nothing, more. Uh, no, nothing, uh, you know, in, in the scheme of things in Arab states, uh, nothing too much more. They've got a bit of a history of being a bit independent in their, in their policies, uh, foreign policy, Qatar, and 
They're the ones who finance the Al Jazeera um, mm. media network. That's all Qatar money. So they've got a bit of history of exercising a bit of soft diplomacy through Al Jazeera, and they recognise Iran as a player and are willing to talk to them. And because they're willing to talk to Iran and to recognise them as being an important player, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates and Egypt are, are not happy. So, Scott, you know, the question then is, well, you know, is there a risk that these Arab states might attack Qatar? And we've mentioned previously on this podcast that one of the best means of defence you could possibly have would be an atomic bomb, <laughs> a nuclear weapon. And that was that's the key thing to stop, you know, America from... Um, you know, pursuing regime change. And Qatar does not have a um, nuclear weapon, but Scott, it's got the next best thing in this situation. And what Qatar has, dear listener, is an army base that houses 10,000 American troops. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no way that these other Gulf states are going to be sending tanks over the border into Qatar because Qatar's got 10,000 American troops at the Al-Udaid Air Base. So that's going to keep everybody except America at bay. Um, Clever move, Qatar. Very clever. Touche, I say. Yeah, well done, Qatar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... uh, there we go. So that's Qatar on that one. Um, Scott, one thing I haven't mentioned for a while is on our website, dear listener, the various books that we have mentioned over 100 episodes, uh, most of them are listed there. And um, I think it's quite a good eclectic selection. And if you are interested in buying any of those books, you can click on the link and you'll be sent to the book depository and you'll pay the normal price and a small commission will head in the direction of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. So if you're looking for some interesting reading, go over there and have a look. And, Scott, I have started a new book, and it's also listed on there, and it's called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And uh, it's a really – I can tell it's – I'm only – Look, I'm only 44 pages into it, but I know it's going to be one of my all-time favourites. And so, dear listener, I'll be looking for somebody to help me do a book review of uh, this one. So if you're minded to, um, if you've got the book or you're going to grab the book and you're interested in doing a book review in a week or two, let me know. Um, Because, Scott, it explains a lot of how human beings think and it's very important for the issues that we discuss. And remember the very first... as we talk in this podcast, we talk about people giving them something to talk about when they're um, standing yeah, in front of it. around the, the water cooler at work. Mm. On a, you know, giving them something to talk about or an insightful little bit to to add. And so I knew this book was for me, Scott. After reading the first three lines, which said, "Every author, I suppose, has in mind a setting in which readers of his or her work could benefit from having read it." Mine is the proverbial office water cooler where opinions are shared and gossip is exchanged. (laughs) So, dear listener, that's the book for me, I can tell already, and 
if you are interested, grab a copy and let me know that you're reading it and we could do a book review down the track because it's going to have lots of good stuff in it. Scott, did you ever have fluffy dice or anything hanging from your rear vision mirror as you were a young man driving around in a FJ Holden down Hunter Street in Newcastle or anything like that? No, never. <laughs> Dear listener, apparently if you're in the Philippines and you hop into a car, it would be very common to see some rosary beads hanging off the rear vision mirror and dangling all over the dashboard. Philippine authorities have banned hanging rosary beads and religious icons off car dashboards because of safety concerns, prompting an outcry from the Catholic Church, which insists they offer divine intervention on the nation's chaotic roads. So here we have a third world country trying to do something to fix an appalling road toll and saying, guys, get rid of the shit on your dashboard so that you can see the road in front of you. And what does the Catholic Church say? That it's a bad yeah, idea. Yeah, it's a bad idea because it gets rid of divine intervention, you know. Hmm. Father Jerome Cecilano, quote, this is an overreaction, insensitive and lacks common sense, he said. Oh, Catholic Church, can you get anything right? Just one thing, can you get it right? You can't close the... You can't jump out of the confessional box into an open space. You can't, you can't even get rosary beads hanging off a dashboard correct. They just... They're an appalling organisation. <laughs> Scott, Donald Trump isn't happy about NATO, the NATO partners. Well, he certainly had something to say about them in the past, hasn't he? Mm. Right, when Tony mentioned this on Sunday, that um, when Trump was over, over there, um, apparently the NATO countries have an understanding that they will spend 2% of uh, their budgets on defence spending. And only five of them are actually meeting that that target. Scott, any guesses on which five members of NATO are reaching their targets of spending on military? Who would you think? Britain would be one. Um, Correct. Perhaps Germany? Nope. Okay. France? No. The Netherlands? No. Belgium? No. Okay, I'm, I'm out. Think, <laughs> think of a really poor country. Greece, can you Greece believe? Greece does, yeah. Poland uh, and Estonia. I think in the cases of Poland and Estonia, they've got the most concern about actually might need NATO at some point. So well, that's exactly it. Up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the US, the UK, Greece, Poland and Estonia are the only five countries of NATO that are actually spending 2% of their budget on defence as, you know, as suggested by the NATO agreement. And Donald Trump has gone over and said, well, that's just not good enough and you're effectively ripping off the taxpayers of the United States and you guys better start paying your share so that's what donald has said and 
he's got a point if that's part of the NATO agreement that everyone should contribute their share, I would have thought. But, Scott, I don't think a NATO agreement's a good idea anyway. I mean, Estonia is part of the NATO agreement, according to that. Like, the problem with these alliances is that they just click in and automatically everybody's in. So Russia invades Estonia. I don't know if they need to get to a country beforehand to get to Estonia, but, you know, it's obviously close to Russia. I haven't got a map in front of me, but... Uh, the problem with these agreements like NATO is is you are saying, right, once a country's attacked, we're all in, no matter what. And and this is how this is how the First World War started, you know. It was a whole series of alliances that just kicked in automatically. So mm. um so when the prince was, you know, assassinated by Serbian rebels and the Austro-Hungarians blamed Serbia and Germany was part of their alliance and then they started making military moves towards the Serbians and Russia was part of a Serbian alliance and France was part of a Russian alliance and the UK was part of a French alliance. And, Mm. you know, one prince gets murdered in the street by a couple of nutters and the whole of Europe is at war automatically, hmm. whereas without an, an alliance like NATO, okay, somebody's killed, well, let's think about this. Is this something that we really want to go to war over or not? Like, Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, um, Malcolm Fraser wrote, not long before his death, he wrote that um, the time to do away with the alliances was after the Berlin Wall had come down. Because he said that, you know, NATO, ASEAN, ANZUS and all that sort of stuff were all alliances that were relics of the Cold War. And he said with the demise of the Soviet Union and its empire, then you could easily do away with your alliances. Mm. And looking back on him now, I think he was right. You know, because you've got this situation where you've got alliances that were designed to deal with an eastern enemy. And although the enemy is no longer there, <laughs> well, maybe people they are. still. Well, they, they could be there, but I mean, there's probably a fair amount of misunderstanding and that sort of stuff that got them there. But um, you've got a situation mm-hmm. that um, that they're still looking east for the enemy, mm. and they're encroaching and that sort of stuff, and they're taking on old Warsaw Pact members and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Look, I don't deny that there's still some powerful potential enemies out there and China's getting more powerful, but, you know, it's got the, it's got the downside of, of supposedly automatically triggering all sorts of people to come in. But at the end of the day, maybe you can't count on it anyway. So, you know, whether America under Donald Trump would come to Australia's aid in the event we were attacked by some group... Who knows? Remains oh, I think same. we've I think we've probably got a stronger case now that we've got those Marines rotating through Darwin. Yeah, we're doing a bit of a Qatar there. In, yeah, we, 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 we're putting Marines in. American base and you're less yeah. likely to be attacked. True. Yeah. But I think it really depends on the merits of the case at the time and what exactly is the aggressive thing that's happened that you should decide, all right, yep, we need to be involved in this or no, we don't. And the problem with these alliances is it's a kind of, well, 
if A is attacked, then you know B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J are all in as well, automatically part of the fight. And really, I would prefer we just looked at it at a case by case basis and said, well is this worthy of going to war for? And maybe it will be if they're invited. Like, it probably will be. But we sh- Yeah, that's... Uh, the sort of automatic triggering under alliances is dangerous, I reckon. I think you're right there, yeah. I think we have to be very careful about which um, alliances you do actually automatically trigger. Mm. And, you know, NATO is probably one of those that you don't want to trigger automatically. Hmm. Hmm. Particularly from the Americans' point of view, they're nowhere near there, and they're, no, they're exactly. involved in NATO, and they're triggered into into that. So, hmm. well, you know, this is the ridiculous thing. I mean, like um, Libya and Serbia and those sorts of things. Like, remember when um, the British went over to the Americans, and this is during Tony Blair and uh, Bill Clinton's time, and Blair argued with the Americans and that sort of stuff, and he went out and did a couple of public speeches that embarrassed the Americans into actually helping out in the former Yugoslavia. Right. The former Yugoslavia should have been dealt with by Germany, Italy, France, the United Kingdom, and that sort of stuff. It should not have involved the United States. Mm. It should have been dealt with by the Europeans. It was a European problem, but they dragged the Americans into it. Mm. And Libya was another example where... That should have been dealt with by the Italians, the French, the Germans, the, the, the English, but instead they, they dragged the Americans in. Mm. So it's probably they're, they're, time that it's probably time for a, the for the Europeans to stand on their own to get two involved. Feet. Sorry, they've got a propensity to get involved in disputes without without having alliances in there to help throw them in as well. So. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Scott, you sent me uh, an article, I think, in relating to Islam and domestic violence. And I did. Was, was that the one by this Nada Ibrahim? Was it that one for the conversation? Yeah. Or was it right? Nada, Nada Ibrahim. And yeah. I read the article and that sort of stuff, and I then looked at who the author was, and I thought to myself, well, okay, she's going to have a very different view of the world. Um, yeah. It just uh, what, what Islam actually says about domestic violence, and you go through it and that sort of stuff, and you think to yourself, "This is just written by an apologist." Then you see the author, and you think to yourself, "Okay, yeah, she is an apologist." Um, there's not a hell of a lot in there. Only um, she talks about the uh, verse four thirty four. If mm-hmm. Islam condemns all forms of violence against women, what about verse forty four four thirty four of the Quran? Men are in charge of women by right of what Allah has given o- given one over o- the other, and what they spend for maintenance from their wealth. So righteous women are devoutly obedient, guarding in their husband's absence what Allah would have them guard. Um, <clears throat> then we get down to the line itself. Um, but for, the, for those wives who, for whom you fear arrogance, first advise them. Then if they persist, forsake them in bed and finally strike them. But if they obey you once more, seek no means against them. Indeed, Allah is, Allah is exalted and grand. Um, this was a... She went on to claim that there was a something missing in interpretation when it came down to that. 
mm. verse. Which... But she didn't offer an alternative explanation. No, At the she end of the didn't. day, she said, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean hit. Exactly. And she didn't say, well, it actually means something else. She exactly. And, and that is the thing that I find really repulsive about these apologists, is that they say it doesn't mean that. Okay, what does it mean? Oh, it just doesn't mean that. You know, th- that's the thing. So this you've got woman, these. This woman, Scott, is a senior research fellow in domestic and family violence at the University of South Australia. Hmm. If your job is to research family violence and you're looking at that verse in the Quran, which says, advise them, if that doesn't work, um, uh, forsake them in bed, and if that doesn't work, strike them. And she is saying, well, it just doesn't say that. Uh, it's a misunderstanding. It's taken out of context. And um, and so there we go. Violence is not part of the Quran. It's essentially her scholarly article in the conversation in a nutshell. With friends like these, <laughs> yeah, who exactly. needs enemies if you're a battered exactly. woman in the Islamic community? Well, you know, it's it, it might be well for her to say that this doesn't mean that, but you've got guys that are out there interpreting the strict taking the the strict uh, interpretations of the of the scriptures and they're using them to beat their wives it's mm. it's bloody Scott, criminal a, actually anyway i've got a bit from majid nawaz here and dear listener it's it's a little bit of a long excerpt i'm going to give you it's 6 minutes and 17 seconds but uh, majid nawaz runs this sort of um a oh, radio program in the UK, takes calls from listeners, has arguments with people. Uh, he's the guy who's written books with Sam Harris. He's uh, he's a current practising Muslim, but he's an agitator for reform of Islam and saying that parts of Islam just have to be discarded. And he's extremely well read. And he has an argument with a lady over this very topic. And while it's long, I think this... Um, it's worth listening to. So I'll play a bit of this now. Yeah, but, the, but, but, but what rules are suitable to regarding what beating one's wife? Because we're talking about to- toxic masculinity and the link between domestic violence and terrorism. Hold on, hold on, Nadia. Hold on, Nadia. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, let me ask the question, then you can respond, right? So at the end of the day, um, <clears throat> when, when, when the, the Quran directly says, وَاللَّاتِ تَخَافُونَ now, I'm going to read to you what that means, yeah? And that is from Surah An-Nisa, the fourth chapter, on the 34th passage. And it says, And for those women whose disobedience you fear, first admonish them, then part ways with them, and if that doesn't work, beat them. Then if they obey you, it continues, if they obey you, if they obey you, right? Uh, it, it, it finishes off, then do not seek a way against them. Surely Allah is high and great. What what context could possibly justify that in today's okay, modern anybody age? With common sense, anybody with common sense would see that the first step you take, okay, if you have problems with, with a woman or your wife, whoever it is, the first step you take is to discuss with them. Okay, okay that's the first step. What, what, but the passage goes on beyond that first step, doesn't it? So what okay, about this idiot, third step? What idiot, what idiot, what idiot of a man is going to go back after he's separated from his wife and say, I'm going to teach her a lesson because she's still disobeying me and I'm going to beat her. So then why is the third okay, step there? Why, why, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. If that's illogical for a man to do it, why did God prescribe it? Because 
God's given us steps, just like how he... So the third step, what do you think of that third step, Nadia, where it says beat them? What do you think of that? Just like how he didn't say, in the first instance, that alcohol is haram. Initially, he said, do not pray while you are intoxicated. Everything comes in stages so that people can use their common sense and their reason. Okay. God has given us. Okay, secondly... No, before you get to the secondly, answer the firstly. Nadia, whoa! The secondly doesn't matter yet, because you haven't answered the firstly. I agree with you, it's it's got three stages. So, what do you think of that third stage, where it says, beat them? What do you think of that? It's in the Qur'an. It's wrong, isn't it? There's a lot of hadith to support ayahs in the Qur'an. If one was to go and look at that... I'm going to ask you for a fourth time. Is it wrong that the Qur'an says husbands can beat their wives? It depends which context you take it in. Okay, which context is it okay for a husband to beat their wife? Never, it's never okay. Well, you just said it depends which context it, it is. So it is no, wrong, then, it isn't it? It depends which context it's, it's saying, because each translation is different. Oh, no, no, no. Because you and I both know, times. because I read to you that passage in its full context, we both know it's in the context of a wife not obeying her husband. Do you want me to reread the entire passage for you? There is no out-of-context quote here. I'm quoting to you that quote in context. It says, men are the maintainers of women because Allah has made some of them excel others and because they spend out of their property. The good women are therefore obedient, guarding the unseen as Allah has guarded. And to those on whose part you fear desertion or disobedience, admonish them and leave them alone in their sleeping place and beat them. Then if they obey you, do not seek a way against them. Surely okay. Allah is high and great. Gonna, Wait, what possible context could justify that passage, Nadia? Somebody, listen, I've listened to you for the, how many weeks now. You just quote stuff from the Quran and you just assume that you know exactly what it's talking about. Well, that's why okay. I'm asking you. I'm asking you, Nadia, to answer the correct way. What context could justify that passage? Everything in the Quran is supported. By lots of hadiths and ayahs about the Prophet his family, how they behaved, how women were respected, okay? How his daughter, his own daughter, was one of the highest respecting women in the whole of the Islamic community. I'm not disputing any of that, Nadia. You're going off topic. I know the Prophet. I'm a Muslim. I I mean, Nadia, I'm a Muslim, born and raised. I've memorized half the Quran. I've learned and studied the Arabic language in its classical Arabic grammar form. I know the Prophet married his boss, a woman who was double his age. I know all of this stuff. I'm specifically asking you about this passage. Don't move off the topic. No, right? no, I, I know that the Prophet you, I gave females, I, I know he gave them that. property rights, inheritance rights when they didn't have any. He restricted polygamy when it was unrestricted. I know all of that, right? That's not what we're talking about. Why I'm asking you specifically, Nadia, what you think why of this passage that allows men to beat their wives. Is it wrong? I'm saying it's wrong. Do you think yes, it's it wrong? wrong? Right. I so, it's wrong and I told you it's wrong. But at the end of the day, majority of these people that are going around doing these extremely sick things. No, no, I'm not asking you if it's wrong to beat your wife. I'm asking you if that passage is wrong. In that Quranic that passage, passage that I read to you, I'm saying it's wrong. It must be abandoned. What do you think? I cannot agree with you. There we are. There's the problem. So when we talk about toxic masculinity, even you have just said you can't dispute a passage that allows a husband to beat his wife. That's the problem, Nadia, that is in our community. We've got to start, like Christianity has done and Judaism done, we've got to start being open, frank and honest about these passages and say they no longer apply. This is a despicable thing to say you cannot condemn. It says a husband can beat his wife. That is wrong, and we've got to say that passage has to be abandoned. It has no place in modernity, in today. And I'm frankly quite sick that as a man I'm making that point because to the nation, you as a Muslim woman should be making that point. Nadia, I'm going to let you get the final say, but we do have to move on, so do do respond to that. 
Um, after you've just spoke over me for about a minute, you're now giving my chance to say to me. So thank you so much for that. At the end of the day, I'm the first person who will defend women's rights in Islam. Oh, wow. Not to say that, it, not to say wow. that what is mentioned about beating women is correct, but there are reasons why things have stages, because it should never get to that stage so, in the first place. Uh, sometimes okay? it's okay, then. Secondly, secondly, this whole Wahhabi mentality of teaching people out of fear, teaching them, women to be suppressed, Okay. Yeah. Well, sorry, Nadia. You can't blame it on one sect. Wahhabism. Sorry. You know, you're going. You're blaming it on one sect when even you couldn't condemn that passage, and that's the problem we have here. We've got to be able to openly, frankly, say the passages like that have no place in our modern discourse, and you couldn't say that as a woman, and that's shameful. Shameful indeed. It was. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, he asked her for a simple answer, and she said nothing. It was. Ridiculous, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she. It's well. It's like that. Those women who ganged up on Ayan Hersey Alley. Mm-hmm. Um, two things is these ex-Muslims. Well, he's still a Muslim, but the, the ex or practicing Muslims who speak out against Islam are just incredibly valuable to the mm-hmm. cause because mm. a guy like that can say. I have studied classical Arabic language, so you cannot accuse me of misinterpreting. And I know the context. So we, somebody like that is just so valuable. And that's why uh, those women um, from the Moroccan soup kitchen and whatever just went all out on Ayan Hersi Ali is because they know what a danger um, sort of former Muslims can be yeah. in arguing against them, and they hate them with a passion. So mm. for you or I, they can say, oh, you haven't read the original script. You're missing, you don't, you're just looking at an English translation. You've missed, which is essentially what that article from the conversation was, was that there's no English words for the Arabic words here, and it's all a big misunderstanding. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, reprinted in billions of Qurans around the world. So, so that's one is that the, um, they just hate um, uh, Muslims who argue against them and that's why they hate Tawhidi as well, the, the, what's he, the, the sheikh, what does he call the guy? Anyway. Oh, the, this is the guy from sheikh. South Australia, yeah. yeah. Mm. I couldn't think what his name is, yeah. So they hate him as well and, and, you know, these women are still the first to say that they are in support of women's rights. Like... The author of that article was a senior research fellow in domestic and family violence at the University of South Australia. Yeah. She say she's pro-feminist. That, the woman caller on that show said, I am the first person def- to defend women's rights. But she wasn't defending them at all. She was just carrying on. You know, it was ridiculous. Yeah, so good on you, Majid Nawaz, for just absolutely sticking it to her and telling her it's shameful. I think it's a lost cause, though, on his part to think that you can, you know, in any way start carving out bits of the Quran and and disposing of them. It's just not going to happen. Well, you know, it was brought up on Sunday, wasn't it, that um, the problem there is that the Quran is seen as the last and final word from God, you know, and you cannot have any new new interpretations or new prophets. Yes. So... key part of it compared to um, the Christian scripture. And 
The other thing which Sarah Hayter said in a podcast with Sam Harris was that uh, civilization was evolving and Christianity evolved kind of at the same time. So it was easy to drop bits out of Christian doctrine because it was changing in society at the same time. Whereas um, much of the Islamic world is coming from a very uncivilised situation, hard up against a completely different Western civilization and being asked to transform. And that's a much harder thing to do as well. So that was an interesting take by Sarah Hayter, I thought, mm. that um, they can see that any small giving away of ground is just heading towards this terrible Western alternative, whereas in the Christian changes, it was more of a slow evolution over centuries that happened in a change in society at the same time. So, yeah, mm. interesting argument. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Scott, that's, I think, going to wrap us up for episode 100. Did you have any reflections or anything you wanted to say about... About the last 100 episodes? Yeah. Um, probably episode 8 is still my favourite. That was when... Um, yeah, episode 8 was when... Um, it was announced by Tony Abbott that we we're going to have a, pop, a plebiscite on gay right. marriage. Right. And I went to town on that issue. So. <laughs> okay. There's one to look back on, dear listener. What I thought we might do, Scott, is I thought, because um, these episodes are two years old now, maybe once a month, um, say when I get to episode 105, I might look back at episodes one to five and just take out some highlight bits and if we made predictions, see how they've gone and we yeah. could do a sort of a... Uh, what were we doing two years ago sort of thing, <laughs> once a month. So so that's part of the things we might do, dear listener. Also, over the next 100, maybe a few interviews with a few different people and, um, and yeah, lots of – a few new characters coming on as well. Squeaky wheel, she will be good. And, uh, yeah, so onwards and upwards, the show will evolve. Scott, you and I are still enjoying it and having fun. And we are having fun. No sign of yeah. stopping, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. All right, dear listener, on that note, I'm going to play thank a little you bit very of the much. outro. And uh, thank you if you have been supporting us. Thank you if you're going to. Cheers. Thank you for being listening. And we'll be back for episode 101 next week. Mm. Bye. Bye now. Cheers. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf, on their phone, and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon, and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from 
$1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.